Hi, I'm Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio, and my guest today in the Pearl Garden is Bryony Doran. Bryony is a novelist, poet, short story writer. Bryony has a new collection of poetry published within an anthology called Homefront. This anthology is published by Blood Axe Books and is available online or in all good booksellers. The purpose of the anthology is to illuminate the anxieties and the feelings experienced by women particularly whose loved ones are away or were away fighting in a war. Now I don't want to get in the way of this so without much further ado I think we'll just introduce Bryony Doran and if you need to know anything else about Bryony Doran go to www brianydoran.com You can also follow Bryony Doran on Twitter at Bryony Doran or on Facebook at Bryony Doran author So Bryony Doran poet, novelist short story writer wonderful woman How you are forgot, you? You forgot comedian Comedian of course yes stand up comedian yeah, how are you this bright and sunny morning? I'm fine, thank you. It's very nice to be sitting here with you. All right, good. And what have you come here to talk about today? I've come here to talk about today my poetry. Your poetry? Okay, have you had some published recently? Nearly a year ago to the day. A year ago, right. Okay, and what's uh, what's it called? Well, my collection is called Bulletproof. And it's part of? A bigger book called Homefront, published by Bloodaxe. By Bloodaxe. Wow. So, tell me something about this poetry. How did it come about? Well, in 2010 it was, my son had joined the army and he flew out to Afghanistan in October 2010. I was meant to be writing my second novel at the time, which I have to admit I still haven't finished. But I will do. It's out there. And I started writing poetry. And it wasn't, I didn't sit down and think, oh, I'm going to write this poetry. That'll be better. It just sort of, a lot of it just occurred. It just came to me. I saw all sorts of bizarre instances of life which I'd never seen before because I was living in a heightened state of sensitivity, I think. And I think it, writing this poetry was the only thing that kept me sane and kept my mind off the terrible dread and fear that at some point in during his six months in Afghanistan, I'd get a knock on the door. Are we going to experience some of this dread and fear when you read from this collection later? A little bit, but, I mean, funnily enough, I found humour in a lot of these situations as well so it's not misery poems it's it's I'm just I just wanted when I got it published I wanted to share with everybody else just how the experience was it wasn't about being a victim or anything like that I just wanted to share how it was for the well, people left behind they always say trouble shared is trouble halved so did you find that the not so much the writing of the poetry, but perhaps the publishing of the poetry, uh, something of a cathartic experience? Did it help to uh, settle you or become accustomed to the fears that you'd experienced? It's a good question. I don't think I ever really thought 
when I set out to write the poetry or was writing the poems because I didn't sort of like think I'm going to write 43 poems. I They just sort of came in dribs and drabs. I don't, they were, because they're very personal, I don't think I ever thought I'm going to get this published. I was just doing them because they were there to do, I think. The publishing of them was great, but I think what I've experienced since is very powerful in that when I've done readings, people really seem to connect. Yeah, well, I've heard you read, and you are easy to connect to when you read. You read very well. In fact, you're going to read some of your poems again this morning for us, aren't you? Three of them? Or Um, four? That's up to you. (laughs) Right, okay. Well, we'll see what we've got time for. Tell me something. You did say that you were halfway through your second novel, and you're determined to finish it. Tell me something about your first one. My first novel is called The China Bird and it is set in Sheffield and partly in Cornwall and it's about a man called Edward who suffers from scoliosis of the spine. What's scoliosis of the spine? Well, I suppose the old-fashioned term for it would be a hunched back, as in like um, Richard III, somebody like that. You don't see people with these conditions as much nowadays because they, if they're caught early enough, they can be treated. But in Edward's case, they weren't. Where is it available? It's available on Amazon and mostly online now. Wordery, the book depository. And who is it published by? It's published by Hookline. And how did Hookline get hold of you? Well, I sent the novel off to the Hookline novel competition, which is judged by book groups throughout the country they choose the one that they like the best and I was very honoured to be chosen in 2008 9 I think it was and it felt really good because these were real readers that were choosing this book they weren't choosing it because they thought oh this will sell well or any other reason they chose it because they liked it well that's uh, always a good thing I gather you also have a collection of short stories. Yeah, I do. I'm Tell laugh- me something about that. I'm laughing because Yvonne, my uh, publisher, said... Is that Yvonne Barlow that's from Hookline Books? That is correct. She asked me when my next novel was going to be ready. And because I was writing the poetry, it wasn't ready. And so I said, I have got some short stories that would probably form a collection. So she said, great, let's have them. So they were published in... 2013 and one of the ways I like writing is having the character having English as their second language okay well coming from Cornwall you've probably got English as your second language <laughs> <laughs> yeah. can he tell uh, yeah made <laughs> and a lot of these stories are set in Turkey and they are a bit when I say voyeuristic it's it's like seeing culture through the eyes of a stranger. In a strange land. In a strange land. Mm. A lot of them are about women without a voice, which I think is, is something that's very important to me. So so we're talking here largely about women with no power. Do these women manage to find a form of power in your stories? Yes, but sometimes it's not a nice power. It might be power over other women or people that aren't as powerful as them. Which sounds like life to me. Really. Uh, yes, I suppose it is. Yeah. yeah, But that's a female slice of it. Yeah. The book is called 
the sand eggs because one of the short stories is called sand eggs and that's about an apocalyptic situation where all the men die and it's only women that survive which is an interesting concept because it's feminist wishful thinking (laughs) well it might be but then they discover that they can't actually exist and procreate without men unfortunately <laughs> oh, so so fifty percent of the world is unfortunate as far as you're concerned. <laughs> no, not really. It was just an interesting concept to explore. Yeah, it is. I've read the story actually, and uh, and, and I have to say, well, I, well, you couldn't put it into a sort of science fictional category. It is speculative fiction, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a nice ethereal touch to it as as has so many of the stories in the sand eggs they deal with great issues but with a very light touch and i, and I thoroughly enjoyed the sand egg. now let, let's just take you gently back to your poetry how long have you been writing poetry well writing was the only thing i was ever any good at at school which was a bit odd because i was dyslexic <laughs> Can you spell it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I have to look it up every time. And and sometimes when I try to look it up, I can't find it because I've spelt it so badly. But even, <laughs> even the word finder can't find it. <laughs> I like it. So I remember reading poetry and writing poetry from a very early age. I really got into it seriously when I first came to Sheffield, actually. I think there's something in the air here and all the hills and valleys. Oh, Sheffield breeds great, great talent. You've only got to listen to the rest of my podcasts to understand that because Sheffield breeds great literary and musical talent and art too. But I can't send art out through Urban Tiger Radio, unfortunately. But yeah, you're right. There is something in there. Actually, I don't think it's in the air. I think it's in the water because we both know someone who likes to come up from London and take bottles of Sheffield water back down with them because they can't find anything palatable to drink down there. So what do you think it is that's uh, in the air or the water? I don't know. There must be a certain... uh, Maybe it's because of the lack of oxygen living so high up. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's freedom. Yeah. I think there's there's a great freedom in the city to be what you want, do what you want, the way you want. So did you find that when you moved here? Yes, I suppose I did. I've never really thought about it that way. I hadn't, in my adult life, I hadn't ever sought out writing workshop, but I did it almost instantly when I came to Sheffield, strangely enough. Yeah. What did you find in that writing workshop? I found love, I found friendship, I found inspiration. And it was at what they call a WEA workshop, which is Workers' Educational Association. Also my initials. (laughs) And the great thing about it then, I'm I'm not sure it's still the case, was that they had a creche, a free creche. And at the time, my son was three, I think. So I was able to attend this workshop and he was able to enjoy himself in the creche. So, your your poetry, you've been writing poetry for quite some time then now, maybe 20-odd years. And this particular collection, was did you find an ally in this to help you put this collection together or propel it towards Blood Axe? Well, one of the things I've been doing for the past few years is going to Crete to a workshop. 
And the last time I went and did a workshop, I think it was 2013, maybe. And the person running the workshop is the illustrious Ruth Padell, poet and academic, who has huge warmth and generosity towards other writers and other human beings in general. And I showed her some of this poetry and she said, you have to get this published. And I'd never really sent poetry off or got it published anywhere except in maybe one or two local small press. So I was a bit taken aback at first, but then she offered to be my mentor and help me pull the collection together. Which is strange, because I know that you mentor other writers, not just poets, mm. either, but novelists and short story writers. So now now the mentor finds herself being mentored. So what was the trajectory from from there, from Ruth sort of adopting the position of mentor regarding your work? What What happened to it from then on? Well, I pulled it together as a collection and then we went through it and through it and through it and through it. We would meet or I would send her the poems and she would send back comments until we felt we got it honed into a position to send out. How did it come about? Was it you or Ruth that found that Blood Axe was producing a collection? No, well, she sent it to... Blood Axe initially and then Neil Astley from Blood Axe came back to her I think and said that there were three other women poets out there who'd all written on a similar theme. They were wives or mothers of people serving in either Iraq or Afghanistan. But this was a similar theme, they weren't similar styles or similar poems just no, on, on the basis. They of... were very different styles but we found, I mean I've read twice now with Isabel Palmer who is the other English poet because the other two are American and she's also a mother like myself the other two are wives of servicemen and we've been able to interweave our poems together because there are similar themes as in like sending a parcel or you know just the fear and seeing stuff on the television So we've managed to pull it together, and I think it works very well. Great stuff. Do you find yourself greatly affected by the fears of others? Do you find that not only do you have your own inner fear, but that others project fear onto you, saying, you know, um, oh, he's gone to Afghanistan, he might never come back, or come back in bits? I don't think people have any understanding of of what it's like really but you can forgive people that the worst thing I found was the press and how they want to milk every tragedy for what it's worth and and they've they've got a fascination with numbers you know like the hundredth person to die it's just yeah, I just macabre, find them on. Yes, that's yeah, it's sad actually. Very, very sad that we live our life by numbers. Yeah. In fact, we live our death by numbers, yeah. and I find that absolutely appalling. So, BBC, if you're listening, it's absolutely appalling. And get down off it. Every life is a tragedy, yeah. not just not just the hundredth or the thousandth. Well, or the, the other thing was, you know, like they go to interview somebody who'd lost either a, a son or a husband and, and they'd say, you know, how do you feel? How are you coping? Well, what stupid questions to ask. Yeah, I agree entirely. Are you upset by the loss of your son or your husband or lover or whatever? Yeah, mm. I mean, it, it, it is really ridiculous. And I, I join you in that. 
and I'm about to ask, where next? Mm. Now you now you you're a published author with a novel. You've got a collection of short stories published, which is a sort of familiar trajectory for most writers. But now you have a collection of poems published in an anthology of war experience poems. So what's coming next, Brian? What are you going to do now? I desperately want to get back to my Polish novel. Ah, tell me something about it. It's set in 2005, which was quite an auspicious year. It was the year that the Polish Pope died. And my main character, Claudia, arrives in England. And like I said before, I love writing in a character whose English is a second language. And what does Claudia find when she gets here? She finds that people look at her as if she's somebody uneducated. And she feels like a second-class citizen. And is she educated? Yes, she is, but uh, she keeps it quiet. Well, what is she educated in? Well, she's a poet, actually, um, and she's got a degree in English. And one of the reasons for her coming to England is she desperately wants to get her father's poetry published Uh and translated. Yeah. But with a degree in English, do you think she would have been able to translate it herself? Yes, probably. But I haven't really worked that bit out yet. Ah, I see. That is just one of the themes of the novel. The novel, on the whole, is about exploring how it is for somebody coming here from another country, especially Poland, where most people then, I mean, I was in 2005, and now, to a large extent, are very ignorant about Poland. Yeah, it's a place I've been to, lovely place, lovely people. So she finds it difficult in many ways, but also very funny. And she sets out to exploit people as well that treat her as somebody that's uneducated. Do you think the problem she was having with her father's poetry, I mean, this may come out in the novel. I tried to translate something from Spanish back into English once and found myself very, very quickly defeated by the sense of metaphor. And poetry has a depth behind the words and far more meaning beyond them. To do a, a transliteration doesn't actually convey the essence of the poem. Do you think this might have been a problem she had? Did she have a problem with the English language and nuances that she possibly wouldn't have experienced in a degree-style English? Well, I th- she didn't think she did until she arrived here, and she gets a job initially as a waitress in a coffee shop And she gets really irritated because she can't understand a lot of what people are saying because our language is quite colloquial in many ways. For instance, like the boss says to her, can you clear that table? And she doesn't know what she's, she doesn't understand what she said. If she'd said, could you please remove the plates and the dirty cutlery and everything else from that table, she would have understood. But can you clear the table? She didn't understand that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, you can move from here to Barnsley and not be understood, never mind coming from Poland. So does does your character very quickly come to grips with the colloquialisms and uh, sense of metaphor, or does she struggle with it all the way through the book? What Does she find humour is a way of developing an affinity with, with the English language? Yeah, I mean, she's quite greedy for it, in a way, the language. I mean, she... Every time she hears something new, she wants to sort of write it down. 
in lots of the things we hear about immigration into this country or any other country for that mm. matter, one of the things that seems to happen or, or we hear about is exploitation. Does she find anyone trying to exploit her when she arrives here? Yeah, on, on many levels really, from very simple things like where she works and, and then she gets a job as a nanny with a very PC couple but they exploit her as well which she doesn't understand. So Bryony, let's now hear some of your poetry from Homefront, published by Blood Act Books and available on Amazon and Waterstones and all good bookstores. And you're going to read us three poems initially. Um, these are three sort of chronologically linked poems. And the first one is called Joining Up. And the next one Hey Joe. Hey Joe, which again gives me a, a quick blast back to the 1960s where None of us really understood the lyric, but now we do. Or you will, after you've heard Bryony read it. And the third one is? AWOL. AWOL. So, let's hear from Bryony Doran, starting with Joining Up. He didn't tell me until after he'd given up his job that he wasn't sure he'd actually get through. Or that when he went to sign for Queen and Country... I could have dressed up and gone along with him. The first time I saw him in uniform, he didn't tell me he'd be a stranger who swore like a trooper in front of his mother, or that I'd become part of the army, another day's parents eating plastic pack sandwiches thrown casually on tables. He didn't tell me that in order to pass muster, He'd make up his bed, then without even a blanket, sleep all night on the floor. Or that when it got to November, as part of his training, he'd spend a week in the snow on the North Yorkshire moors. At passing out, he didn't tell me that with rifles as props, they'd strut debonair as horses, then swoop forward and stoop to a bow. Or that in the officer's mess, Tonic wasn't served without gin, and I'd meet his sergeant, a man they called Sheep Teeth, who said my son was known for his droll humour, an opportune comment that always raised the morale. He didn't tell me that after we left he'd get paralytic, miss the last train, and then get a taxi to bring him the hundred miles home. Hey Joe, it wafts in from my own teenage years and now from the gap under the attic door on his first day off in six weeks he plays it over and over. I said, where are you going with that gun in your hand? After four decades, I now understand these recruits in barracks, who still survive, who hang on in there. Every last one of them is Joe. AWOL What if he were to bottle it? Go AWOL on this last weekend home before Afghanistan. 
would they hunt him down like an escaped convict, take him to the glass house, lock him in the dark, and when he'd served his sentence, let him walk away with a dishonourable discharge, two legs, and the rest of his life. Well, thank you, Bryony. Now we understand a lot more about the things that we thought we knew in the past, but never really did. Now, you're back with the Urban Tiger again, and here is Bryony, and Bryony's going to talk to us a little about her next poem that she's going to read, which is called Wormwood Scrubs. So tell me something about that, Bryony. Well, the title, Wormwood Scrubs, comes from the fact that my father was imprisoned in 1942, I think, in Wormwood Scrubs, because he was a conscientious objector. And not only was he a conscientious objector, he refused to take any part in the war effort. And because of that, he was imprisoned on several occasions either in Wormwood Scrubs or Maidstone, which were both high-security prisons. Weren't conscientious objectors usually sent to work in the coal mines in Wales or wherever? Yes, but he refused to do that because he said it would, that would be helping towards the war. Uh, I gather your father um, would have been sharing cells and, uh, and what meals with some quite well-known people in Wormwood Scrubs. Did he meet anyone of any great interest? I I think so. I mean, I I never really knew about this until after he died, which was when I was a child. So a lot of it was hearsay. But I think he came across Lord Longford at some stage, who was also a conscious, anxious objector. And my father worked in the library at the in the prison at one point after he'd finished sewing mailbags. And I think, yes, he did meet Lord Longford. Did they stay in touch after? Well, I'm not sure there was somebody who he stayed in touch with that got him a job at Batsford's Publishers in London, but I'm not really sure who it was. Maybe it was somebody of who had quite a lot of influence, though. OK, so let's listen to a combined story of your father alongside the experiences of your son. I find it very strange not coming from a military background or having anything to do with the military up until my son joined the army. And I had to take a step back and think that he had as much right to his opinion as my father had to his. Well, that's astoundingly fair of you. And I also had to consider what my opinion was, of course. Yes, but what did you do with your opinion? I tried not to be judgmental, I think, and just take, when I say a middle road, that sounds a bit trite. I'm really not sure what I think. I mean, because I was only a child when my father died, I, I never got to ask him the question that I would like to ask now, which is when he saw after the Second World War what happened to people like the Jews and that, would he have changed his mind and would he have gone to fight? What an amazing question. It would be amazing if you could get an answer, but there must be many people out there whose minds and opinions were changed during the course of the Second World War, but obviously there aren't that many of them left now. Mm. But if any one of them does have an opinion, then feel free to write in to urbantigerradio at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts on that matter. 
So now we'll hear the poem, Wormwood Scrubs. Seeing you stood to attention, I see my father, and wonder what he'd say if he were alive, waving his only grandchild off to war, his pacifist principles thrown in his face, hand-sewing mailbags with a missing index finger, never meeting his daily quota, getting his rations cut. If he'd known then that you'd choose to become a soldier, would he have banged on his cell door and shouted to be let out, seeing that all his struggles were for nothing? Or would he have kept stum and done his term? I wonder, would he blame me for bringing you up wrong, or shake you by the hand? Look after yourself, me old cock. Right, you're back with Urban Tiger Radio. Brian is still here, you'll be pleased to hear. And Brian is going to bring us some more of the poems from her collection very shortly. The next poems that she's going to read is called Flight to Kandahar. And that will be followed by a very deeply personal poem called Snow on the Line. But, Bryony, you wanted to talk to me about Flight to Kandahar. Yeah, one of the experiences or way I would explain my experience of my son being in Afghanistan, the word that keeps coming to mind is mythical. And I've asked Isabel and uh, other people whose sons or husbands were serving, and, and they agree this word comes up again and again. I looked up the definition of mythical, and it, it sort of says something that's not quite real or true, something that's more like a in a fairy tale or that. And my son was very compliant in that he, he seemed, the significant days he went and came back seemed to be mirrored with significant events in history. When he flew out to Kandahar, it was the same night that they brought the Chilean miners that had been down in the ground for 69 days that they were brought out of the earth. And when he flew back, it was the same night that they found and killed Osama bin Laden. Right, very propitious moments for all involved. And your second poem that you're going to read this time is Snow on the Line. Just tell me something briefly about that. Well, this is, a, when I say it's a true story I mean they all are but it's very bizarre sort of part way through him going I started to tell strangers that my son was in Afghanistan and I don't know why I did that and it was partly to sort of see the shock on their faces I think because like I said it, it was all mythical it was all on the television nobody or very few people knew people that had sons or husbands out there. So when you told them, that you saw them sort of real, really. And in some ways, that helped me to make the thing seem more real, which I'm not quite sure why I wanted that, but that's how it was. Yeah. What do you, what do you feel about portraying war on television? I remember during the Falklands, all we got was some sort of stilted recording of, of someone reading numbers really and and yet now we get Afghanistan the explosions the whole thing wherever we are Syria all 
portrayed openly on the television? Well, I keep looking at what the difference was between, you know, women whose men went to serve in the Second World War and the First World War in the wars now. And I think the difference is the instant that something happens, it's out there. Do you feel that this is instant gratification? Because I think I think the media overfeeds us. In fact, I think the media generates an appetite. It's almost like relating a, a story, a narrative, which again plays into the sort of mythical... Myth, yeah, the mythology again. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's the mythology of war, hmm. basically. Because, to be fair, if you, if you watch the media, you only ever see the survivors. You rarely see people that don't Mm. Um, and as you said earlier on we fight wars in numbers now and that's really difficult so right you're now going to read flight to kandahar followed closely by snow on the line flight to kandahar tonight 33 chilean miners Trapped underground for 69 days, rise one by one through the earth in a capsule. Their arms tucked back like cormorants gliding upwards until they come finally into the light to their families and the rest of the world. At Bryce Norton, 2,000 men in desert fatigues rise into the night sky Plane after plane, a formation of large grey birds migrating south for Addis Ababa to refuel, then on to Kandahar, and finally Nari Saraj to remain for 172 days. Snow on the Line I have a compulsion to tell strangers on trains. My son is in Afghanistan. A man who sits next to me on the way back from Newcastle asks how do I cope. Swirling snow blurs the landscape. I don't know where we are. At Durham I move seats to face the right way, but when I go to the toilet a youth moves my coat and takes my seat. He's plugged into a war film. I know he's a soldier, I can read the signs. Outside Darlington, we stop for snow on the line. I say, you're a soldier, a Marine, he corrects. Then I say it, my son's in Afghanistan. He looks at me, no pity in his eyes. He's been, it's tough, can't wait to go back. At York, I move seats. I want to face the wrong way read all the Sunday papers held at arm's length. Three soldiers injured in a roadside bomb in Helmand. The train stops. We're outside Doncaster. Snow on the line. Thank you for that, Bryony. There's no snow on the line here. It's cold enough almost, but we've got a lovely blue sky and it's a lovely Sunday morning which is a bit different to some of the Sunday mornings you must have spent while your son was in Afghanistan. So he came back, but he didn't just come back once, did he? He came back in the sort of in the intermediate stage, shall we say, where they give them rest and relaxation. 
Uh, <laughs> would you like to describe that rest and relaxation to me? It was excruciating. I mean, one of the problems is that you're supposed to have two weeks off, or the men are, in the middle of their tour of duty, but they can't all have the same two weeks. So it depends when they can get off. And a lot of the men, and it was in my son's case as well, the rest and relaxation period occurs very near the end of their tour. So it almost feels, you know, you feel like thinking, why are they going back? But the actual period of them coming home is is terrible because you both know that he has to go back and he hasn't got time to acclimatise and nor have you. It was terrible. It was a terrible experience. Mm. Now, speaking about poetry regarding this subject and experiences, I gather you're telling me that there's a young poet out there who's writing similar themed work. Well... Is from a different viewpoint, because very interestingly, because we've got mostly American, Brian Turner, Kevin Powers, and some others out there, men that actually served in the military recently that have written poetry. But now emerging is a young woman who was a soldier. And her name is? Jo Young. And she's sent me some of her stuff, and it's uh, beautiful. And I think... It's really interesting to have it from a woman's point of view as well as our woman's point of view, which so, is one removed. So is she English or American? She's Scottish. Scottish? Yeah. My God, we're getting travelling a bit here. And where can we get hold of Joe's work? Um, I'm not sure yet. There's a very good article that was written about her work by somebody called Leslie Tate, and I'll post a link on Facebook and Twitter. So to find that link... People are going to have to look on Facebook or Twitter for... Well, if they look for Bryony Doran on Twitter or Bryony Doran Author on Facebook. Right, OK. And there you will find a link to Joe... What was her name again? Young. Joe Young's work. OK. Now, you're going to read us Rest and Relaxation and Bulletproof. Now, Bulletproof is the poem from which the title of your collection is taken because bulletproof is the title of your collection within the anthology mm. okay so if you're looking for Bryony doran you would need to look for this poetry you would need to look first for Homefront, then bulletproof and that mm. is Bryony's solo collection which within there which is the title is actually quite ironic because there was i'd felt i didn't feel um bulletproof at all. No, no, none of us do. Not often anyway, although I'm like that when I'm driving, but there you go, that's just me. So, right, okay. Rest and relaxation and bulletproof from Brandy Doran coming up right now. Rest and relaxation. He steps off the train in his desert fatigues. The only clothes he's got with him. Old men on the journey home have wanted to shake him by the hand. Good on you, lad. At first he goes out with friends, gets drunk, but he is sick to death of being asked the same questions, so he stays in. He's not hungry, doesn't want me to cook, orders pizza online I know nothing about, until there's a knock on our back door. A face on the TV a soldier killed in Afghanistan, 
a lad he shared a room with during training. Fucking loved the army, wanted to be SAS. I hear him late at night pacing his attic room, then opening the cupboard door to get his shoes, taking himself off for a walk and a smoke. On his last day, he says when he gets back, he's putting in for his motorbike test. He sees the look on my face and laughs, asks why I'm scared of life. Bulletproof On our landing, there's a bulletproof vest I keep stubbing my toe on. It doesn't budge, unlike his helmet that rolls like a decapitated head. Had to wear them as we were flying out of Kandahar, in case we got shot down. Daft, I know. The fatigues he brought back were full of desert grit that dried my finger ends. Now they hang drying over the banister, the sleeves still rolled up. His army-issue underpants spill tiny white beads over the landing carpet. They're special, he says. Saves your manhood if you get your legs blown off. Right, Brainy, and we're back with the Urban Tiger and Brainy Doran, and we're going to talk now about the next two poems that Brainy is going to read for us in pretty short order. One is called News from Your Area. Now, we have already touched on this subject earlier, and it was about the way the media treats bad news, basically, which is what they seem to feed us 24-7. Now we have 24-7 rolling news. It's not news, it's which malady afflicts us or the world next. So your next poem is News from Your Area, Yeah. followed by... The Dressing Gown. The Dressing Gown, which is about receiving news. Well, it's about the fear of receiving news, that knock on the door. Right, okay. So we'll listen to News from Your Area and The Dressing Gown from Bryony Doran from her collection Bulletproof in Homefront. The News from Your Area The newswoman has another veteran story. A local man who died in Sangin province, fighting for his country, is to have a close in Nottingham named after him. She interrogates his parents, wants to know how did it happen, how does it feel, how can you cope, how did you hear. A man and a woman came to our door, wearing civilian clothes. My partner reaches for the remote, I grab it. The woman said she was a major. That's when we knew. No, that's not right. I have the picture in my head. Two men in military uniform come to our door, announce to us and the street why they've come. Not a couple we might mistake for Jehovah's Witnesses. The Dressing Gown She is delaying the morning ritual, showering, cleaning her teeth, getting dressed, the unkindness of every day repeating itself. Tasks folding from yesterday into today. Cleaning the toilet, 
the kitchen floor, hand washing, jobs that require rubber gloves, and onions, the chopping and frying of onions. She'll get washed soon, start a new day, with her hair smelling of apple and chamomile. The postman knocks, brings a package from a world where other people live. What if they were to come to the back door? with her in her dressing gown, smelling of onions. She'd have to send them to stand on the pavement, take a quick shower, dress and do her teeth. They'd hold their berries by the rim, look down at their shoes. She'd hear their words in her kitchen. Could they make her a cup of sweet tea? Right, you're back with the Urban Tiger and Brainy Doran. And Brownie's now going to talk to us briefly about the next two poems she's going to read. Harvest and doing John Agard for GCSE. Right. Would you like to just tell me something about the... Can you, can you tell me... I mean, I, I know your son did a six-month tour mm. of Afghanistan with a couple of weeks R&R in the middle. So can you tell me whereabouts these particular poems are placed in, in, a, in a time frame? They're about when he went back, I think, after the rest and relaxation. Which was a joke. Yeah. Yeah. The Harvest poem, I really wanted to write something or try to write something from what I thought might be the point of view of an Afghan boy. Because I was very aware that, you know, all the poems were coming from the point of view of, I suppose we could call it the invader, myself included, uh... So I wanted to just put a different perspective on things, so, which okay. is why I re- read, wrote that poem. Yeah, and uh, doing John Agard for GCSE. Well, one of the poems my son loved as a child was um, Half Cast by John Agard. And there's a line on it, who standing on one leg. Okay, well, let's let John Agard explain that because I know you sort of semi quote him in the, yeah. in the poem. So here's Bryony reading Harvest and doing John Agard for GCSE. Right, thank you. Harvest. I hear on the radio talk of the pomegranate harvest in Nari Siraj. And in my head I see a small boy climbing a tree in a walled orchard to tap the leathery rind of each fruit in turn. And if he hears a chime like a dull bell, I see him cup the fruit either side of the calyx crown and with a quick twist sever it from the tree, then lob it into the long grass where his older brother is waiting for the catch to add to his wicker basket. I see soldiers skirting the perimeter. One of them could be my son. I can't tell. In their desert fatigues, they all look the same. They are suspicious of the soft grenades that land with a thud and a rupture of flesh if the small boy is quicker than his brother. I see how, from up in the tree, the small boy can watch the soldiers with their guns. He is not afraid. They give him pens and play football with him when the elders are away in the town. I see that if the small boy took careful aim, he could hit one of the tin helmets. 
but these soldiers who are a similar age to his brother do not deserve his prized fruit and though i see he is sorely tempted we both know that the response would be an unseasonable rain of bullets doing john agard for gcse no dawdling that day he fairly loped home from school exploding through the front door into my workroom I laid down my black-handled shears and switched off the sewing machine. You fetched the biscuits. I made a brew. Then we sat on my unmade bed and drank tea, yours with one sugar and chocolate digestives. You told me about the John Agard poem, standing to give a rendition in front of my mirror, always the natural mimic, the class clown. You plagued us for days. Explain yourself, standing on one leg. What do you mean when you say half-gassed? How did we get snuck up on? You out there in Afghanistan manning a checkpoint, a delayed voice asking for thermal socks. Me here in front of my full-length mirror, hearing kids return from school, doing my exercises, trying to strengthen my core, to balance on one leg pulling my foot up behind to hold for 30 seconds. And there you are in my mirror, standing on one leg. Thank you for that, Bryony. And we're back with the Urban Tiger again. And Bryony Doran, poet, author, short story writer, broadcaster, Comedian. Comedian. I keep forgetting comedian. And I don't know why I keep forgetting comedian, because you always make me laugh. And, Bryony, your next two poems are going to be Dancer and Parade in the Rain. Would you like to tell me something about those two? Dancer is... I wanted to portray something about post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something I feel very strongly about and even if people don't suffer in inverted commas from it when people come back from a war zone they are in a heightened state of sensitivity which takes a long time to dissipate and that's portrayed in the dancer i also think that post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't just affect soldiers i think it affects their family and everybody around them it's one of the wider ripples yeah, of the war but, effect but i don't think that's recognized at all no i don't think it was recognized particularly at the end of the first two world wars either it was just a question of uh, get back to work and get on with it mm. so yeah which doesn't always work does it right okay now parade in the rain this is my rant poem. All right. <laughs> you like a good rant, do you? Yeah, occasionally. <clears throat> um, I must take after my son for that because he likes a good rant as well. I found, unfortunately, and I think this is the only poem that may be just a little bit judgmental, but when we went to the medal parade, I found that there was a huge disparity between the men and the officers, and I felt that the relatives of the men and the men themselves were treated appallingly. I mean, we didn't even get to see them have their medals pinned on them. 
It was a terrible day. It rained all day and all the men that had been injured were in wheelchairs at the front. And yeah, it wasn't... Just a very, very dispiriting day. And of course, a highlight of that would have been Prince Charles and Camilla being flown in by helicopter. Yeah, and us just all being pushed out the way as if we were irrelevant, really. That's yeah. how it felt, anyway. Yeah, well, you probably haven't got enough medals on your chest that you haven't earned either. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, okay, so let's listen to Dancer, uh, which is a particularly startling poem. And Parade in the Rain, which is Bryony's rant against the army. A Dancer When he was a child, we used to play hide-and-seek in the long corridors of my mother's house. Often he would secrete himself away in a cubbyhole outside the bathroom door, and when I passed, jump out, shout, Boo! He'd been two weeks back from Afghanistan when I hid there, jumped out as he passed, saw him move swift as a dancer, a twirl, a whirl round, a slide to the ground. If he'd had a gun, I'd be dead. A parade in the rain. Yes, I know I shouldn't have done it, that it's your life, your story, but where am I in all this? You didn't have to get up at 3am and drive down the motorway, did you? So please don't tell me what I can and can't say. OK, OK, maybe I shouldn't have gone to the Guardian. But you didn't have to watch all those families who slept in their cars overnight, get dressed in their best, even the children... And you weren't there when we were all stood at the memorial in the cold, waiting for something to happen. Looking at that motorbike helmet somewhere had placed there, and seeing the visor, blood red, reflecting the poppies, not knowing what was going on. So don't tell me to give it a rest. And when it finally did kick off, it wasn't you that had to dash to the parade ground and battle your way through all those wedding-dressed people to catch a brief glimpse as you march round. You didn't have to watch Charlie and his entourage swish in with their huge umbrellas and listen to him say how he understood how we all must have felt with our soldiers out there in Afghanistan. So don't have a go at me. And then his camera crew obscuring our view, so he had to push down through the barriers and stand next to a grandmother in pink, even her parasol shielding the rain. But you know, that's the one thing I had in common with all those people there. We'd all come for the same reason, to realise it was all at last over. That's what we wanted, to put it down. So no, you can't have your say. You were stood to attention in the back row. You didn't have to see the front line, the wheelchairs, the lad, your friend, with the new legs below the knee, and him having to look up as Charlie pinned on his medal. And then to top it all, your medals, unbeknown to us, being doled out down the lines by God knows who. So don't tell me, mother, it happened, get over it. A graduation, that's what we all wanted, that's why we'd come, that's why we'd rearranged our holiday, to see you stepping up there, your name called out. Respect, 
That's the one word I didn't find that day. All crowded into the naffy like sodden rats, dazed old people, crying children, and not a cup of tea or a bun laid on. So don't tell me. Right, we're back with Bryony Doran again. Now she's done ranting about the army, something in which I concur, to be honest. Now, Bryony's next two poems are subsequent to her son's return. One is By the Way and the other one is Looking Back. But what I want to ask you, Bryony, is when your son came back from Afghanistan, he was still in the army and he was still in the army for another couple of years after mm. that. But when he came back from Afghanistan, did you find that he was more communicative than he'd been before he went? I mean, one of the things I want to get across with this collection is it is is about me, really, and my experience. And I think his experience, etc., is a, is a private matter and up to him. Well, the reason I asked the question is because I do know what, by the way, is, is about. And, yeah. and it's a poem about communication. I don't think he was any less communicative than he ever had been. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I meant. I mean, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't asking about mental condition. Or I mean, I mean, I think, I think this happens, a lot of parents find this, that uh, they only find out information when their son's conveying, or their daughter's conveying it to somebody else. Looking back mm. is the second of these two poems. Where, where do you position that? In what respect? Well, it is the last poem in your mm. collection, I do believe. Yeah. And is it your own personal reflection? Yes, it is. So, in that case, we'll just, without any further ado, we'll listen to Bryony reading By the Way and Looking Back. By the Way For the most part, information is conveyed in company. Usually, when we're all sitting in my back room with the Sheila urchant staring down at us from the chimney breast. And as a rule, they are my friends, and it is evening. So often drink is involved, as there was on this occasion, thanks to it being a year to the day since his return. So we were celebrating, and he was pouring everyone a glass of red wine, when he happened to mention he got some good news, news he kept meaning to tell me, but always kept forgetting, and actually he'd known for three weeks. He remembered it was the day they received their wage slips, and their lance corporal had come in and told them they'd never ever have to go back to Afghanistan ever again. Sorry, Mum, I should have mentioned it earlier, shouldn't I? Looking back, he said after he came back, his biggest fear hadn't been losing his life, but his legs. He'd have had to live with that all of his life. If he'd died, that would have been that. I didn't tell him. I thought the same. Well, thank you for those, Bryony. They're a wonderful insight into, into your experiences. And what I want to ask you now is where do you go now, with this particular poetry, we realise there's Remembrance Day coming up shortly, but where where else does this poetry go now? Well, I've talked to Isabel Palmer, the other English poet in the collection, and also mother. Um, and over the past year, 
or 18 months, I suppose, we've become great friends. And we intend to do some more readings, both at festivals and also to an army audience, because we feel that it would help other women if we shared our experience. How are you going to find the army audience? Have you any uh, lines of exploration to follow them? Um, Yes, several. We're doing uh, one reading at the end of this month in London, and um, hopefully from there I can explore other ones. Right, okay. What's the London event? It's the Army Family Federation. And when is that? It's on the 27th, but it's a closed... It's a closed event? Yeah. Bryony, I would like to ask you, out of the whole collection, which is your favourite poem and why? Good question. (laughs) That's why I asked it. (laughs) You don't think this is an easy ride, do you? I like the humorous ones, I suppose, which um, I think in some ways bulletproof falls into that, although people would say the humour was rather macabre in it. I think when you first asked the question, the dancer sprang to mind. It conveys my son's childhood and my mother's house. And yeah, I think that's the favourite one. The dancer? Yeah. Well, you're something of a dancer yourself, Brian Dolan. You dance your way through the literary genres. And I would like to thank you very, very much for this interview today. This is a wonderful contribution to, to my podcasts. And I'd like to thank you again. And just to reiterate that Bryony's books are available, The China Bird and The Sand Eggs, on Amazon or at Waterstones or direct from Hooklide Books. And you need to go, and if you want to know more about Bryony Doran, you need to go to www.bryonydoran.com. Bryony and you'll find on... Sorry? Sorry? You'll find on there also... Um, some audio sections, the first chapter of The China Bird and The Slighted Piper, which is a story in the Sandex collection. Right, and also if you scroll down the list of our podcasts, you will also find The Slighted Piper by Bryony Doran, nestling away at the bottom of our podcast because Bryony was our first podcast with The Slighted Piper. I didn't know that. Yeah, you were the first, Bryony. So thank you very, very much. And it's absolutely wonderful to hear your poetry and the way you share your emotions very, very freely with the rest of the world. I wish the rest of the world did the same. So thank you again, Brian Eroran. And thank you for the opportunity. You are very, very welcome. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week's show, folks. I hope you enjoyed your free podcast from Urban Tiger Radio. And if you've hit that subscribe button, You'll be hearing from us again in a week's time. So it's a goodbye from me and a... From Nelly. Goodbye.